Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. July 4th, 2015, fell on Shabbat. At Adamah, the Jewish Environmental Fellowship at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center, the fellows spent the day taking leisurely walks and trips into town instead of their usual activities, which include chores, working in the fields, and taking classes. As the sun started to set, I joined two of the fellows on a hike up to Lookout Point, an overlook point that sits on the Appalachian Trail adjacent to the retreat center, which is where that view is from. When we reached the peak, the sun was setting, so we started Havdalah. We brought a candle with us, but we had to get creative to come up with other Havdalah supplies. Scented oils took the place of a spice box, and we used water instead of wine. As the first fireworks started to dot the horizon below us, we sang the blessings together. As we were finishing, more fellows, staff, and visitors from Isabella Friedman joined us and kept the singing going. Instead of the usual cacophony of fireworks, our ears were treated to a choir of about 20 voices singing in harmony as we watched the colorful displays below us. When the fireworks ended, we hiked down the mountain by the light of our headlamps and spent the rest of the evening enjoying kosher hot dogs and veggie burgers around a campfire. <coughs> this July 4th celebration epitomizes Jewish life at Adamah. We enjoyed a creative celebration that was earth-based, Jewish, and American. We hiked up a mountain, performed an improvised version of a Havdalah ceremony, and enjoyed the standard July 4th fireworks. Celebrations like this occur with increasing frequency as the Jewish Community Farming Movement expands. The Jewish Community Farming Movement, which began with the founding of Adamah in 2004, now consists of about 20 innovative and pluralistic Jewish community farming organizations throughout the United States. I've been studying these farms since 2012 and have now visited and conducted interviews at all 20 sites. The Jewish community farming movement is, to use the ter a term a bit too on point, a grassroots effort. Each farming organization was created to address specific needs and goals of a defined community. These organizations are joined by a common dual focus on environmental and food justice, but they developed methods, models, and goals independently, and as a result, they vary widely. Some organizations have small plots of land, others have hundreds of acres, and some own no land at all. The farms are located in urban, suburban, rural, and rural spaces across the U.S. and Canada. There are farms at camps, synagogues, JCCs, Jewish day schools, private homes, retreat centers, and even one in an envelope factory. Some of the organizations prioritize food security in their food justice work, and others pr prioritize food sovereignty. A few organizations include in their mission a specific focus on one issue, 
like racial justice, inclusion of differently abled participants, ecological restoration, or expanding the role of Yiddish in American life. Farmers, educators, administrators, and program participants at these organizations represent a multitude of Jewish and non-Jewish identities. I'll offer a glimpse of a number of these farms as I talk tonight. <laughs> no worries. When I describe this research pro project to students, colleagues, and friends, the common response is a giggle and some form of the question, Jews farm? This response speaks to a real and perceived distance between most modern Jewish people and their agrarian ancestors. Once I've convinced someone that farmers, Jewish farmers exist, the next question is usually, what makes a farm Jewish? Which we were talking about earlier. It surprises many Jews and non-Jews to learn that agriculture is inherent to Judaism. The Jewish community farming organizations are working to educate people about the Jewish agricultural past while ensuring that there's also a Jewish agricultural present and future. I'll begin by discussing some of these agricultural foundations that provide the basis for the contemporary movement of Jewish farms, and I'll discuss some of the sustainable and spiritual practices that happen on these farms. It has been hundreds of years since the majority of Jewish people worked in agriculture. Darren Jaffe, who until recently worked as Director of Agricultural Innovation and Development at the Leishtag Foundation and goes by Farmer D, sees this connection as something that can and should be rectified. As we sat in his office, he reflected, as Jewish people, we've been pushed off the land through the diaspora. We've lost touch. Farmer D sees Jewish community farming as a path back. He explained that the engaging in farming could move Jews Jews towards reclaiming their cultural identity and connection to the earth and seasons as social justice and stewardship. At Leashtag, they've dedicated 67 and a half acres of their site in Encinitas, California to Coastal Roots Farm. This is a community farm inspired by the Jewish tradition of agriculture. The Jewish community farming movement's organizations are bound by this shared commitment to engage Jews in non-denominational settings to reconnect them to Judaism, the earth, and its creatures through the revitalization of Jewish agricultural laws and traditions. Um, I'm going to discuss the Jewish agricultural laws, rituals, and values that together form the basis of an ecological ethic that guides Jews as they repair and revitalize relationships with animals, the land, and other humans as they grow food. Farmer D has a solution to reconnect Jews to the land. He explained, the guidebook back in many ways is the Jewish farmer's almanac in the Torah, like how we farm and how we care for animals and people. The Torah, or the Hebrew Bible, describes the communal narrative of the Jewish people and it assumes an agricultural setting. The creation narrative in Genesis describes how the earth was created and how and when everything came to be. There's much debate, both in and outside of Judaism, over whether humans are meant to have dominion over the creatures of the earth or act as stewards for them, but either interpretation calls for humans to be intentional about their relationship with land, plants, and animals. In the third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden, and Adam's punishment is to toil and sweat in order to eat. Narratives like the story of Adam and Eve offer an explanation about the lives ancient Israelites were living. Biblical Israel Israelites knew it was useful to keep domesticated animals, and also that growing food was difficult and unpredictable. 
The almanac portions of the Hebrew Bible that Jaffe mentioned offer guidelines for Jewish agriculture. There are laws about how to grow food and when to harvest it. There is also troubleshooting for the times when animals were inflicted with disease or the rains didn't come. The question in the Hebrew Bible isn't whether humans should engage in agriculture, but rather how, and Jews in particular should engage in agriculture. Because of this, these laws were a priority for the rabbis who compiled the Mishnah. The obligations of farmers are addressed in the first volume of the Mishnah, called Zeraim, or Seeds, because farming was the primary occupation of the Jewish people in the early centuries of the Common Era. Five of the 11 tractates, or sections of Zeraim, deal specifically with farming and food, while others are concerned with blessings, donations to the temple, and tithing. The tractate Peah, or Corner, is concerned with regulations based on Leviticus 23.22, which commands Jews to leave the corner of one's field for the poor. Kilaim, or of two sorts, deals with the rules related to forbidden mixtures. Laws discussed in this tractate forbid Jews from planting two kinds of seeds together and breeding between different types of animals. Orla, which translates as uncircumcised, is about the waiting period that must be observed before the fruit from the trees can be consumed. This is based on Leviticus 19.23-25, through 25, which informs Jews that after a tree is planted, the fruit is forbidden for the first three years. In the fourth year, it should be offered to God, and they can begin eating the fruits in the fifth year. The first fruits from the trees and the first products of all harvests are also meant for God. This is the topic of uh, Bikurim, or first fruits. Shevit, or seventh year, describes the restrictions of the agricultural sabbatical year known as Shemitah, or release. This practice offers a Sabbath for the land. Humans are commanded to rest after six days of work and to let their land rest after six years of being worked. All forms of agricultural labor are forbidden in the seventh year, including plowing, seeding, reaping, and harvesting. Jews are permitted to eat perennial crops and to ensure that their animals and people without land are also fed. The Shemitah year also includes an economic component, which calls for Jews to release debts owed to them. These guidelines set up an agricultural ethic for the Jewish people that's based on an idea that Jews are meant to live as one creature among many in a world they didn't create. The laws encourage Jewish farmers to give their trees time to grow before they begin to harvest, and the best of their harvest is marked as sacred and offered to God. Forbidding the mixing of crops and animals calls Jews to be conscious of their power and wary of abusing it. Setting aside the corners of one's fields reminds, for the poor reminds Jews that the food they grow is meant to feed not just their family, but also their community. Finally, the sabbatical year reminds Jews that the land does not belong to them and that it deserves rest just as they do. As North American Jews return to the land, seeking to revitalize these ancient practices, their enthusiasm for the ethical approach to agriculture and their desire to reconnect Jews to their roots in every sense of the word has resulted in a creative reimagination of these laws. Agriculture also provides the scaffolding for organizing time and building a meaningful Jewish life. The Hebrew calendar is organized by growing seasons and pilgrimage festivals, and four new years mark key moments in the annual agricultural cycle. Rosh Hashanah is the new year most familiar to the Jewish people, and this is the new year of seasons. It marks the point when the Hebrew year changes. 
the seven-year Shemitah cycle is also counted using Rosh Hashanah. Tu Bishvat, the new year for trees, celebrates the end of winter and the first buds of spring. This new year was also used to keep track of the age of trees for Orla, so you know what year it is and whether you can have the fruit. The new year for the Jewish people falls on the first of Nisan, the spring month that contains Passover. The months start over in Nisan, so Nisan is actually the first month of the year. This new year commemorates the transitional moment when the Jewish people left Egypt and became a nation. The final new year is the new year for animals, which falls in late summer. This was the date used to keep track of the age of one's cattle and the size of one's herd during the sacrificial period of ancient Judaism, so appropriate tithing and what you should bring to the temple to be sacrificed could be calculated. Three pilgrimage festivals also punctuate Jewish time. Each of these festivals began as an agricultural festival that was later imbued with historical significance. Passover marked the beginning of a new planting season in ancient Israel and also became associated with the exodus of the Jewish people from slavery. Shavuot, which falls seven weeks after Passover, was an agricultural celebration of the spring harvest. After the biblical period, it took on significance as a commemoration of the day that Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai. Sukkot was the celebration of the fall harvest, and over time it also began to recall the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert after the exodus. As Jews moved off the land and away from agriculture, these foundations, the foundations of these holidays were often diminished in favor of their historical significance. The Jewish community farming movement and Jewish environmentalism movements, broadly speaking, seek to reconnect Jews to the rhythm of the seasons that's ingrained in this annual cycle of holidays. The contemporary Jewish farms offer agricultural spaces where Jewish holidays can be celebrated in nature in accordance with some of their original intentions. The farmers reimagine and revitalize ancient agricultural practices and holidays as they do so. They begin to alter their relationships with animals, the land, and each other. We'll head now to some of these farms to witness some of the work that they're doing. Human-animal relations that form the center of the work at farms encourages Jews to rethink their relationships with animals and the foods that they produce, in addition to their responsibility as Jews to protect and preserve vulnerable animal animal populations. Staff at Adama in Connecticut, which was mentioned earlier, and Shorish Jewish Environmental Programs in Toronto, Canada, engage chickens, bees, eggs, and honey in their Jewish rituals. When they do so, they are including these animals and their products in religious community. In late June of 2015, hundreds gathered in Erin, Ontario for the grand opening of Bela Farm, a project of Shorish Jewish Environmental Programs. We gathered in an outdoor synagogue space for a song and opening words from Risa Allison Cooper, the executive director. During her opening remarks, she explained that at Bela Farm, they are manifesting a 114-acre center for sustainable land-based Judaism. After her remarks and some more singing, we marched out onto the land, led by the band that you can see here, um, singing as we marched. We walked by beds of garlic and soon entered a protected forest area. The band stopped playing so we could walk quietly through the apiary where the Bela beehives live. We headed past nine hives accompanied by the quiet hum of thousands of bees buzzing away as they went about their work. Protecting pollinators has become a priority for Shoresh. Sabrina, the director of engagement, 
picked up an interest in beekeeping as a fellow at Adama and brought it back with her to Toronto, where she began to learn from a local master beekeeper. She focused on pollinator protection in urban centers in her graduate work in environmental studies, and she combines her knowledge and passion in her work at Shoresh. Concerned about the declining local pollinator population, Malik wanted to do what she could to include bees in the mission of Shoresh. In a Toronto Star article from 2014, she describes the process by which Jews in Toronto came to care about the bees. She said, they fell in love with the honey, but bees dying made people care. The bees at Shoresh are Apis mellifera, also known as European honeybees. This species of bees pollinates more than one-third of global produce. Most grains do not rely on insect pollination, but many fruits, nuts, spices, and vegetables require that pollination. Alfalfa, which is also one of the main sources of livestock forage, is also pollinator-dependent, so meat production similarly requires pollinator participation. Since 2006, beekeepers in the U.S., Canada, and Europe have dealt with colony collapse disorder, or CCD. In the U.S., beekeepers face an annual honeybee mortality rate averaging 30% due to CCD. Restoring honeybee and native pollinator populations are a priority for Shoresh, and they're using their land at Bela Farm to do it. Shoresh refers to this work as community-supported beekeeping, and they ensure that the Toronto Jewish community has plenty of opportunities to learn about bees, colony collapse disorder, and local pollinators. Every garden that Shoresh runs around the city of Toronto has a section of plants to support wild pollinators. And at Bela Farm, they have dedicated about 20 acres of their land to the bees. At the grand opening celebration, after we marched past those hives, and walked, we walked into an area called Dina's Tent. This gathering place is in the middle of a field surrounded by 12 permaculture guilds that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. A performance group recited a poem about nature, and these seed balls, which you can see there, were passed out. Risa led the crowd in a blessing of thanks for reaching this movement, and we walked in silence to a fence at the edge of the field and threw the seed balls into the land that Shoresh was about to acquire. The seed balls flying over the fence onto the land were the first of many wildflowers that will be planted in the Bela Farm Bee Sanctuary. When all the seed balls had been thrown, the band started playing a hora, and the crowd began to dance. Shoresh has centered bees in their work, and at Adama, chickens are the heart of their farming operation. I learned this when I was there in the summer of 2015, but it really hit home on a cold morning in December of that same year. I don't usually pray outside in a compost yard in 20-degree weather. And yet, there I was at 7 a.m. I was attending the Hazon Food Conference, and Sarah Chandler, who was then the Chief Compassion Officer for the Jewish Initiative for Animals, and formerly the Director of Earth-Based Spirituality at Adama, led a group through Shachri, the morning prayer with the chickens. A group of about 10 of us walked into the compost yard and gathered around the colorful roost. We sang as Sarah opened the doors, and the chickens scurried out to start their day. As they did, Sarah led us through the morning prayers. Then she asked us each to choose a chicken and enter into a meditation with that one chicken. We were meant to walk alongside it and try to see the world as they did. I picked a small but feisty rooster. I followed him through the yard as he crowed at the hens. 
I watched him nibble on some orange peels and reject a compostable cup. I saw him scuttle away when a more dominant rooster crowed loudly in his direction. I wondered whether his feet were cold, walking through the snow, and marveled at the tiny footprints he left as he scampered about. And you can see this picture is from a different shakrit when there was not snow. <laughs> I didn't bring my camera that first time around. Um, after a few minutes, Sarah called us back and asked us to reflect on our time with the chickens. Some people shared their observations, and other members of the group began to remark on how what we witnessed, how we witnessed some similar behaviors, and how they, they maybe were characteristic of particular birds. Sarah then fielded questions about chickens. She told us that Adama was in the process of transitioning their flock to heritage breed birds with the help of a local farm called Linka Flegel, which is Yiddish for left flank. In the United States, heritage chickens began to be replaced by hybrid breed chickens in the 1950s. The hybrid chickens grow faster and bigger with less feed. They are also more likely to experience issues with skeletal development, heart and lung function, and obesity. Adama's chickens are integral to their farm, and the hope is that the heritage birds they are now raising will live longer, healthier lives. Every day, about 100 pounds of food scraps are added to the growing pile marked Feed Me, and the chickens get busy. The chickens pick through the scraps from the retreat center's dining hall, kick up dirt and food in varying stages of decay, and defecate on the pile. Their work, plus time, results in dark and nutrient-rich compost that Adama uses to grow crops for the dining hall and for their community-supported agriculture program. Bringing people into the compost yard to engage the chickens allows guests of the retreat center to think differently about chickens and to learn more about animal welfare as it relates to them. Face-to-face -face experiences like the one we had on that cold morning are meant to deepen the relationship between Jews and chickens and to encourage Jews to be conscious of the current welfare issues in poultry farming. The staff of these two Jewish farms, Shoresh and Adama, are engaging their communities, creating opportunities for Jews to encounter animals, and engaging in multi-species Jewish ritual. Adama and Bela Farm serve as sanctuaries and sacred Jewish space for bees, birds, and humans that all dwell there together. Just as Adama and Shoresh fo focus on repairing relationships with animals, other Jewish farms are focused on repairing relationships with the land and with plants. On a hot sunny day in June 2015, the farm at Pearlstone Retreat Center in Reisterstown, Maryland was relatively quiet. A small group of volunteers was harvesting the last of the asparagus, while another group was breaking down old wooden structures from the greenhouse beds. One of the staff people was cutting the lawn at the edges of the farm, and I was sitting in a patch of chamomile harvesting the flowers. Eventually, the chamomile would be dried up and given to the program staff for goat milk soap demonstrations. It was a calm task and one that contrasted drastically with work I had done when I volunteered on the farm two years prior. During that summer in 2015, I worked with a group of farm apprentices planting, watering, weeding, pruning, hoeing, and harvesting produce for the community-supported agriculture program they were running. In 2015, the four acres of land that are usually dedicated to raising vegetables and herbs for that CSA were in the midst of a year of release. The apprentice program was suspended for the year, but the fields were not barren. 
The usual rows of squash, peppers, and tomatoes were absent, but the field still abounded with vegetation. Buckwheat, barley, and oats were planted in their place to nurture and rejuvenate the soil. These cover crops are prevent were preventing soil erosion and adding nitrogen to the earth. Worms were moving through, leaving nutrient-rich castings, and networks of mycorrhizal fungi were reconnecting all the areas of the farm and fostering communication underground. As I stood overlooking the land with the farm director, Greg, I marveled at how the farm was simultaneously the same and completely different from my first visit. Greg concurred and suggested that what we were looking at was just one degree different than what we would be looking at any other year when you were standing in the same spot. 99% was the same, but the 1% difference is the Shemitah ingredient, which Greg said was their aspiration. He estimated that 90% of the garden spaces on the farm were healing during the Shemitah year in an effort to achieve a maximum restoration that would ensure the success of the farm in future years. Healthy soil has a lot to do with the success or failure of food production. Shemitah and the cover cropping that came with it allowed the soil to rest and rebuild. As the soil rested, the staff turned to restoration projects around the property. This suited them well because, as one staff member pointed out, farmers don't rest. Shelby, who is a Chesapeake Conservation Corps volunteer assigned to Pearlstone, explained that her work on the farm that year was divided into 20% programs, 30% on the farm, and 50% restoration work, which she said was what most interested her. She had done two major projects as part of her work on restoration. The first was restoring a, a riparian zone, which is a wooded streamside area at the boundary between the farm and the woods. We worked in the riparian zone on a particularly hot day during my visit. Shelby, a group of volunteers from AmeriCorps, and I worked an entire day to clear out invasive species. The tasks included pruning thistles, removing honeysuckle that had overrun a hillside area, cutting back invasive vines from indigenous trees planted in the zone, and keeping an eye on the spread of a parasitic species that Shelby had tentatively identified as Japanese daughter. At the end of the day, we were all scratched up, sunburned, and exhausted. A number of the volunteers reported back the next morning sporting red inflamed poison ivy rashes, but I heard very few complaints. A few minutes spent with Shelby was enough to convince us that battling inv invasive species is important work. She said she feels these plants are an ecological danger that people aren't paying enough attention to. The invasive species outcompete native plants and throw off the balance of local ecologies. This is the work that's vital to the, to the ecological restoration of their land. This is also the work that the farm staff does not have time to do during the CSA years when they're spending time caring for annual crops. The Shemitah year provided an opportunity for Pearlstone to repair some of the damage that they had done to their fields as well as damage that had been done prior to their arrival in the surrounding wooded areas. The staff of Pearlstone released their land for the year and reset their priorities and dedication to creating physical and mental space for Jewish agriculture in Baltimore. The Jewish farming movement also inspired a couple living in Geneva, Illinois, to rethink how they were using the land next to their business. I didn't initially imagine that my research on Jewish farms would take me to an envelope factory, but in June 2016, I visited Fred and Tricia Margillis at Continental Envelope, 
and pushing the envelope farm, which sits adjacent to their factory. Fred Margulies bought seven acres of land in 1995 to build his em envelope factory and offices, which is the white building in the back there. He rented about half of the property to a farmer who grew corn and soybeans conventionally, meaning with pesticides. In 2007, one of Fred and Trisha's children, Elon, was teaching at Teva, an experiential environmental education program, which is housed at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center, the same place as Adama. Elon invited Fred and Trisha to visit and for Sukkot, and they loved it. They returned a few months later for the Hazon Food Conference, and Trisha began to get excited about how they could transform their land. They asked, a, they asked their farmer to switch to organic, and he said no, so they parted ways. At that point, they decided to farm the land themselves. They left the land fallow for a year before trying to grow anything to give the soil some time to rebuild. The next year, they hired a farmer who started a production farm and sold produce at the Geneva Green Market. They also offered plots to employees of Continental Envelope, and Fred told me that people were very excited about that. The next year, their son Elon took over the farm, but decided he wanted to shift their focus away from the for-profit production model. The Northern Illinois Food Bank had just bought a building up the road, and Elon arranged for the produce they grow at Pushing the Envelope to be donated there. The food bank serves about 60 million meals a year, and partners with many local farms to ensure that those meals include fresh produce. During my tour there, Janine, a grant writer, told us that they were especially grateful to have a connection to a farm so close to their building. It allows them to send their volunteers to pick produce themselves, which they do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Elon developed a curriculum that they could use for Jewish educational programs, and Elon now works for his own, so Fred and Trisha are doing a lot of this work themselves. In 2016, they started a program where farmers nearby, looking to start their own production farms, could use land at pushing the envelope to get started, and experiment a little bit before buying or renting their own land elsewhere. The program has been successful so far, and Fred is really excited about what he sees as an opportunity to create a model for other businesses with excess land. He sees the relationship between his business and the farm as symbiotic. The presence of the farm inspired them to make changes in the factory itself, including installing energy-efficient lighting, recycling all that extra envelope paper, and cleaning their water output. They're able to fix the farm equipment on site in the factory, and the workers are able to grow food and spend time outside on green, on, in green space on their breaks. Fred is hoping that other business owners will see the work that he's done and be inspired to use their land in sustainable and creative ways. The final area where many of the Jewish farms focus their attention is on moving towards justice for all people, both in and outside the Jewish community. Three organizations provide good examples of how this type of justice work develops in different contexts. Netiyah, a Jewish network that operated for a few years in Los Angeles, installed gardens for synagogues, churches, and mosques. The Jewish Farm School, which mobilizes Jews to do food justice work in Philadelphia, 
and the staff at Shemesh Organic Farm at the Shalom Institute in Malibu, who center inclusion in their work. We'll start in LA. So in July of 2016, I stood in a circle of Jewish teenagers from the Mitzvah Corps summer program, Jewish community volunteers from all over LA, and members of the Emmanuel Turner African Methodist Episcopal Church in the church's satellite parking lot in Compton to start building a garden. We were welcomed by Anthony from the church, who told us he never gets emotional, just as he began to tear up at the sight of people ready to work on turning his dream into a reality. Anthony had applied for a matching micro-grant from Netiyah. These grants, which are offered to community members in food deserts, are part of Netiyah's focus on food sovereignty. Netiyah's founding executive director, Devorah, explained this focus to me when we sat down in a shady corner of the parking lot later that morning. She said, the work that Netiyah is involved with is shifting the food work that happens inside our communities from food relief to one that's not charitable focused but justice driven. The microgrant program allows Netiyah to enact a model of food justice focused on helping people in the community use their land to grow their food in areas where fresh and affordable produce is hard to acquire. That morning, the plan was to turn a lot covered in dried grass and stones into a garden. After Anthony and Devorah welcomed us in the circle, we split into groups and started building the garden. I spent the next two hours taking apart wood pallets with a group of teenagers who were not super great at using tools so they could use the wood to, to build raised beds. Another group spread topsoil over the dried grass to make the land level. And a final group worked with Nate, the gardens designer from Westside Urban Gardens, to measure and mark out sections of the proposed garden. These community micro-grants and community garden installations are just part of the work that Netia did in LA. 15 sustainable gardens, which were once part of Netia's Just Gardens program, focused on reconnecting Jewish residents of LA County to the land. Netia also hosted an annual Food, Faith, and Field Symposium, which gathered lay leaders, clergy, educators, and cooks from faith and spiritual communities to explore stewardship. All of the work that Netia did in the years it ran in LA brought religious people from various backgrounds together to foster self-reliance and stewardship in ways that are meaningful and necessary for residents of LA. In March of this year, my research and teaching worlds collided when our campus garden, gardener, Kirsten Martin, and I took a group of Allegheny College students to Philadelphia to work with the Jewish Farm School for an alternative spring break. We spent the year working, we spent the, not the year, we spent the week working on urban food justice projects all over Philadelphia. And see, we got some interesting spring weather. Um, on the first day, we spent the morning at Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden. Sankofa Farm's mission is to sustain youth development, community health, and food sovereignty in southwest Philadelphia. The farm has an African focus, which means they are increasing access to fruits and vegetables for the African Americans and West African immigrants that live in southwest Philadelphia. Chris Bolden Newsom, who's one of the co-founders of Sankofa Farm, opened our morning with a short introduction to the farm and to the importance of bringing African, traditional African foods and food production methods to Philadelphia. That morning, one group weeded out a couple of beds on the farm, another group cleaned up branches that had fallen during a recent storm, and a third group sifted compost. Towards the end of the morning work session, we all worked together to transport a fresh delivery of soil from the parking lot to the fields 
with an assembly line of shovelers and wheelbarrow movers. The Jewish Farm School regularly sends volunteers to Sankofa, not because the farm is Jewish, but because as Jews, they see it as their mission to focus on resilience, cooperation, interdependence, and solidarity in their work. The Jewish Farm School's mission is to equip and mobilize Jews to be part of building a just, equitable, and sustainable food system. They see this as a way to renew Jewish Philadelphians' connections to land, spirit, food, and communal celebration. Like Devorah at Natiyah, Nati Passau, who founded and executive directs Jewish Farm School, decided to do, do food justice in Philadelphia without buying land and establishing a Jewish farm. Instead, he focuses the work of the Jewish Farm School on acting in solidarity with non-Jews to uproot systems of oppression that unjustly influence our agricultural, environmental, and social well-being. Nati didn't want to create a Jewish space for Jewish people to do their food justice work. He wanted to integrate them into food justice work that was already happening. What this means in practice is that our week of work with the Jewish Farm School happened all over Philadelphia. We cleaned out a greenhouse and broke down old composters at Klein Life in North Philadelphia, trimmed berry bushes at Saul Agricultural High School after a snowstorm, which is, we finished early and made a snowman, which is pictured here. Um, we sorted seeds with True Love Seeds, packed food and took down a yurt at the Food Not Bombs Free Food Pantry, and attended a Shabbat dinner focused on immigration, sponsored by Repair the World and Hyas. Instead of cultivating their own land, the Jewish Farm School has cultivated relationships. They work with Jewish and non-Jewish organizations all over the city to connect Jewish people to the land, the food system, and their broader community. Back in California and a short drive up the coast from LA, I visited the Malibu Hills, which is where, where the Shalom Institute and Shemesh Organic Farm are located. Shemesh Organic Farm provides an educational space for campers at Camp JCA Shalom and retreat groups from all over California year round. It is also home to Shemesh Enterprises, a program designed to empower young adults with different abilities through employment, internships, and social connections. The Shemesh Farm Fellows, most of whom are not Jewish, work on the farm to grow and harvest herbs and other products, and they sell those products at the Shemesh Farm Stand. On a hot and dry afternoon, I helped Davis, the farm director, and four farm fellows with a planting project on the farm. It took our group about an hour to plant two trees. The fellows chose a Buddha's hand tree and an orange tree, and we set to work. The farm fellows rotated between digging large holes, clearing rocks from the area, and then covering the tree roots with soil and a layer of straw. When the trees were settled in their new home, a fellow watered them. The process involved a lot of hands-on instruction and assistance from Davis and the staff that work with the farm fellows. A group of campers working nearby finished planting their tree before we finished digging the first hole. When I sat down with Davis later, he explained that the program's goals are not related to productivity. The program was designed specifically to provide employment for differently abled young adults. Davis reflected, they can do so much more than we thought. We've seen growth from verbal growth to work growth or focus growth. It's powerful. Davis estimated that about 85% of the differently abled population in the area is unemployed. So he's happy that Shemesh is able to provide jobs, but he noted that there's more than that happening. They're creating community. 
The mornings I spent with the farm fellows made it clear that this is exactly what's happening. The farm fellows have bonded with each other and with the staff at the Shalom Institute. They arrive excited and ready to work and often don't want to leave when it's time to go. Bill, the executive director of the Shalom Institute, taught a class on biblical foods for the fellows one morning, and when he asked the fellows what they thought about being at Shemesh, a fellow replied, it's like paradise here. At Shemesh Organic Farm, productivity is not the goal. Instead, the farm is utilized as a space for education and empowerment of Jewish and non-Jewish people of all ages, religions, and abilities. North American Jews can study Jewish texts and traditions around agriculture and embrace Jewish environmental values at their homes, but the Jewish, the Jewish community farming organizations enable a deeper level of connection. These Jewish farms bring together Jewish agricultural laws, holidays, and values to create spaces that are defined by a Jewish ecological ethic. These spaces allow Jews who may not be aware about the of the role in, of agriculture in Judaism to experience their religion on a different level. In a conversation with Risa and Sabrina at Shoresh, they reflected on the relief they felt when they each realized that their commitments to Judaism and the environment were related. Sabrina described it as a healing moment when she realized that the two worlds did not have to be separate. She recalled a moment of integration and realizing that we can have them both. She's grateful for her job at Shoresh because it offers her, what she says, the opportunity to actually live Judaism, which she felt she had not been able to do before. Risa recalled a radical aha moment when she connected these pieces, saying, not only do these things go together, but to bridge these two worlds of Jewish tradition and environmental sustainability, they strengthen each other in deep and profound ways. Jewish community farming organizations like Shoresh, make living out Jewish ecological ethics based on biblical texts and ancient traditions both practical and possible. So I'm happy to take questions in a much less formal way. <laughs> so you're not allowed to breed a mule? No, no mules. No kosher mules. Well, and um, this is where like ecology and Judaism kind of bump up against each other because companion planting is, is understood to be a very strategic and useful um, way to approach farming. Yeah. And to answer a question that was asked earlier, um, so the laws that I talked about are understood by most rabbis to only apply within the boundaries of the land of Israel. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of these farmers are doing is extending them outward, which is not something that um, orthodox rabbis and and folks would suggest, but that's part of their reimagination of what these laws can do and how they can work. So you say that the three Shoshagalim that they came out of, um, the emphasis was, was originally on uh, the, the agricultural moment and that only later kind of historical mm -hmm. um, topics were superimposed upon them. Mm -hmm. So how did that evolve? And how do you, like, what source are you uh, extrapolating that from? Um, that comes from some books that I have on historical Jewish agriculture. And 
um, there's there's some sense because these festivals are discussed in earlier sections of the Hebrew Bible that they were harvest festivals that were already being celebrated that as some of these other historical events started to happen got layered on. Um, so there was probably a time of hundreds of years where you would be celebrating both. It would be a harvest festival and also the exodus from Egypt and eventually the agricultural pieces slipped away when Jews were no longer harvesting anything. So you think that was around Roman times? In other words, when yeah, so that would have been post-temple, post-second temple period. When they, um, so it's interesting, there's actually a lot more attention paid to the agricultural laws in um, the Jerusalem Talmud than in the Babylonian Talmud because there's an understanding that... Just like this. Exactly. It's not applicable mm -hmm. outside of... Yeah, and so especially for, for people already living in the diaspora at that point, that stopped being part of how they were thinking about holidays and about how to grow food in cases where they were growing food. I mean, so the they're meant to represent... I've heard, you know a lot of interpretations of what they're meant to represent. I don't know when that practice originated. That's a good question. I mean, the... the right. Uh, well, and the four, the four species used in that are native to the Middle East area. So I was, I was talking to the group earlier today about how hard it is to grow kosher etrogs. Um, and I guess there's someone growing them in Phoenix, they were telling me. Um, but in most of the U.S., that's not possible. <laughs> thank you for this. Yeah, thank you for coming. And I know there's a lot going on in the community, so I appreciate you coming. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.